Labor Day episode of the Antifada. Jamie and Sean are off today because they are laborers, but I, on the other hand, am fully declassé. So you can all learn a lot from me about abolishing yourself and becoming an earthbound whatever singularity, as I'm sure you can learn a lot from the works of Noel Ignatiev and our guests. We're going to be talking about uh, one of Noel's books, Acceptable Men, something of a memoir of his time working in the Gary Steelworks in Gary, Indiana. And so we have three guests today to talk about that book. We have Kingsley Clark, a badass labor lawyer and former member of the Gary branch of the Sojourner Truth Organization with Noel. We have Dave Ranney, um, who edited the book Acceptable Men and a former factory worker in Southeast Chicago also a former member of the Sojourner Truth Organization with Noel, and the author of Living and Dying on the Factory Floor, a book about working in factories of Chicago's Southeast Side in the 70s. And finally, we have returning champion, Jana Curti, editor of Hardcrackers, and a former friend of Noel. Thank you all for joining us. Um, happy Labor Day. Why don't we just start off by talking, you can talk a little bit about yourself and your relationship with Noel and, and why you, what do you think uh, is important about his work? I wanted to start off quickly by saying, this is Kingsley, that uh, actually the book is out and we've sold a box of books already through AK and uh, hope to sell many more. We've had two launches of the book in the Bay Area. I wanted to start by saying that we should keep in mind that when Noel went into Gary Works, he had already worked for at least 10 years on the docks in New York, plants in the Chicago area, and was approximately 30 years old by the time he went to work in steel. And as some of the younger listeners might or might not know, the individual tactic at that time in 1971 was to go back into the plants and mills and docks uh, where the hardcore industrial working class was and what we hoped would be the proletariat, the revolutionary proletariat. Yeah, hi, uh, this is Dave. Uh, I'll add to that. I was one of those people that I left an academic job and went into the factories. Uh, I wasn't in nearly as long as Noel. I was in for seven years. I left academics for seven years and then went back to academia and I'm retired. But uh, I, I think during that period, STO had some very specific politics that were uh, presented themselves in different contexts in different ways. But the, in the case of the factory, part of our politics and Knowles was that the path to revolution comes through the day-to-day -day encounters of ordinary people with the exploitation and oppression that's part of the capitalist system. And that we saw the emancipation of the working class being the task of workers themselves. So we weren't out there to recruit people into a Sojourner Truth organization. Uh, we were 
there to be able to recognize the seeds of a new society in uh, workers' actual activities. And then I think a very key part of that was uh, also Sojourner Truth, but very much Knoll, that the kind of major impediment for the seeds of a new society and people's everyday activities was white supremacy and the construction of race itself. And so uh, everything that Noel did in the factories was directed around those things and uh, seeing that we were working toward, as the Communist Manifesto said, a, a society which is an association in which the free development of each is the condition for the development of all. That uh, was kind of the guiding principle. And then uh, recognizing um, the, the pivotal role that black workers, and in this particular case, mostly black workers, would play in making a new society if we could get rid of the construct of race. Uh, just to jump in here, um, Jana, first of all, I want to say really, you know, um, grateful to, to be here with uh, with y'all. I have a lot of respect for Kingsley and Dave and uh, lots of love also for the show. Um, I, I work with Noel in the last project that he um, founded and was active and basically <laughs> ran most of it, which was Heartcrackers, uh, chronicling everyday, everyday life, kind of following this uh, thread of, you know, revolutionary possibilities are not going to drop from the sky or, uh, you know, come in a, in a form of a leaflet, right. That like leftists are going to pass around, but it's going to come from within the contradictions of society. Um, those kind of like seeds of revolutionary potentiality could be found in that. Right. Um, so kind of striving to document those contradictions, but I came to know a lot earlier. Um, I was 19 years old and I was I had left the Bronx for the first time in my life <laughs> um, and I had gone to school in upstate New York. And it was really one of the first times that I was um, a lot uh, around a lot of white Americans, I would say, even though Albanians are white. I kind of grew up in a very immigrant community with a lot of like black Puerto Ricans in the Bronx. So I knew from migrating to the United States, that race was a really important part of how life was structured in the Bronx. Um, I witnessed racism, you know, Albanians were immigrants, um, you know, they often took the worst jobs, my family members and, you know, um, friends worked as janitors, but they <laughs> were quite often very racist, right? Um, they kind of sought to separate themselves from Black and Puerto Rican workers. So I, I, kind of saw that growing up a little bit, but it wasn't really until reading Noel um, and meeting him that I kind of started to put two and two together and to think more, um, I think a little more um, critically about whiteness, about white skin privilege, which I would argue is one of the most uh, important contributions that Noel um, and really, I, I would say STO, right? Like Kingsley, Dave, like that generation of revolutionaries really taking seriously uh, white supremacy and whiteness um, as a ro roadblock for, you know, kind of working class, uh, possibility for working class revolution. So I just thought Noel was like overall badass when I met him. Very short story, uh, and then I'll give it over is 
there was a talk that he was invited to. And I remember he just outright said, it was a university packed lecture. And he said, we should just abolish the white race. And people got really pissed off and upset. And, um, and I remember reading Race Trader, and I just remember feeling like there was a political community for folks, uh, you know, that wanted to, to challenge whiteness, like young people like myself who were being politicized by the war in Iraq, by 9-11, um, and wanted to wanted to build something different. I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, that, thanks for uh, that intro, everybody. And uh, I, I would say that probably most people would know Noel Ignatiev from uh, from the Race Trader Journal and the concept of white abolitionism and the the concept of uh, white skin privilege, which is something that he uh, uh, was uh, important in introducing in the the argu- the discussions about race in the '60s and '70s. Um, but at the same time, the way that he talked about race uh, had a lot to do with his experience working um, in this steel mill and, and elsewhere, uh, just his life experience in general. And so that's a, a lot different from, you know, uh, people might cringe today when they when they hear white privilege or check your privilege. Uh, but Noel was really talking about these things in a, in a more sophisticated way. And the reason it's more sophisticated is not because it was academic, but it, be, it came from the way he saw race playing itself out in this uh, this large steel factory, I think one of the largest steel factories in the world. So with that, let's talk a little bit about this book, Acceptable Men, which, which begins when he drops out of college and decides to go to take a job in, in this factory because he wanted to be, quote, close to the working class, which I viewed as the revolutionary class of the age. And secondly, I wanted to help the class in its struggle for communism. So... I guess this will be more of a question for for Dave and Kingsley. In the late 60s and 70s, thousands of communists and other revolutionaries did the same thing. They took up factory work in the Midwest in order to strengthen the class struggle. Um, How do you see uh, your participation in the Sojourner Truth Organization and uh, what what Noel does in this book as as being different or unique um, from from the, the activity of, say, Trotskyist or Stalinists? Well, for one thing, there's Dave here. Uh, we didn't uh, uh, go along with the thing that a lot of the groups were doing about talking about smashing racism as a kind of rhetorical device. But uh, through, through Noel's practice, uh, the thing, kind of things he did, he demonstrated what that uh, thing about white skin privilege meant that he didn't, at the workplace, he didn't really lecture people about it. Uh, There's a lot of conversations Noel has with uh, black workers about their experience in the mill that are, you know, very illuminating in how white workers tried to block them from bidding on jobs that uh, were considered to be white jobs. Uh, The bigger issue, which I think Kingsley can talk more about, was that in the mills, uh, there they had a, a system through which you could only use seniority to bid on jobs within your unit, and it had the effect of of keeping black workers uh, confined to certain jobs. And Noel struggled with that, as did Kingsley. Uh, and and I'm, uh, but I want to say one more thing before I 
turn that over to Kingsley to talk about the consent decree and steel. But there are a lot of petty little things, and I found this true in my work, where there were the, the privileges were very petty indeed, but they were real. And one, just to give an example, is what when he was first there and he went to take a shower, he uh, uh, went in this one shower room and one of the workers suggested, you really ought to shower over here. And he discovered there were two um, shower rooms. One of them had a mirror in it. And that's where the white workers would shower. And the other one didn't. So Knowles reaction once he realized what that was about was to go and shower in the so-called black shower room uh, instead of using the white one. So he was saying something to both white workers and black workers that he wasn't uh, willing to accept that privilege. Now that seems a little petty, but it uh, I, I've had some very similar experiences in different places I work where they give just little tiny privileges, a nicer locker room, a nicer shower room or something. And rather than give a lecture about white skin privileges, he just moved his showering place. But Kingsley, do you want to say a little bit about the uh, mill-wide seniority issue? Yeah, the atomic bomb in terms of race in steel in the United States is come to be known as the consent decree of 1974. Prior to that, as early as 1969, black steel workers, particularly at Bethlehem Steel in Sparrows Point, Maryland, had commenced uh, litigation, which took five years to get to fruition against unit seniority as Dave laid it out. Let's think back at how egregious this was. A young black man would come up from Mississippi to Gary at say age 18 or woman and simply could not be hired into any jobs in any steel mill in the United States other than the blast furnace and the Coke oven. And those were the two nastiest, dirtiest, hottest jobs. More dramatic, they could not take their seniority at age 38, having worked there for 20 years, and bid on a nicer job at what we always referred to as the polishing end. So a young Polish nephew uh, could get hired immediately into a soft job, smashing or trumping the seniority of the black worker, the Latino worker, or the woman worker. The consent decree in steel, believe it or not, <laughs> um, was a decree entered in federal court in which EEOC, Labor Department, the United Steelworkers of America, and seven of the biggest companies agreed to end this unit seniority. So all hell broke loose in the mills because the white workers obviously were enraged up in arms. Oh my God, they're gonna bump me out of my jobs, etc. Noel told me just before he died that the hell that broke loose at Gary Works was not that dramatic. Other workers told me it was at Inland in East Chicago, um, you know, practically fistfights amongst white workers and black workers. The point 
as it relates to your question is that the Revolutionary Communist Party, October League, other groups tended to try to sell this to white workers in a sugar-coated fashion, um, unite and fight. And STO took the position that we were entirely for the consent decree and we're not going to sugarcoat it and we're not going to engage in the uh, classic unite and fight strategy. Uh, another position that was kind of interesting or maybe counterintuitive to some people is that Noel says that in his activity in the factory, he had no interest in the union. And in fact, some of the literature that he reproduces is is very critical of the union and says the union has nothing to offer. Um, how did this uh, and, and of course, the, the narrative of the book, it shows exactly why that's the case. Um what what would you say to uh, from your experiences? Uh, what what would you say to to people who are very excited about, for example, a union drive at Amazon today? Ironically, I'm meeting at five a.m. with a Amazon organizer. He's read Noel's book. He's going to speak on it here in Gary on the twenty fifth of this month, and he said, "Oh my God, you guys didn't do any organizing." Um, so tomorrow morning at 5 a.m., he and I are going to discuss the meaning of organizing. He's very open. I, I'm making it more mm-hmm. confrontational than it is. But um, we were organizing. The theory of STO was mass organizations at the workplace, but outside of the union. And Dave and I go back and forth a little bit on this, but I don't think we got very far on that. But that was the strategic position. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in the book, there there were some very specific things like uh, workers, uh, black workers and women workers began talking, for example, about some of the particular grievances they had that the union really had... uh, wanted nothing to do with. And so they had a meeting at Noel's house uh, where the black workers and a, and a couple of women workers were there. And the, the interesting thing on that to me, and it did um, highlight STO politics, was that the one of the women proposed that they put together a set of demands that included discrimination of against both blacks and uh, women. And the male black workers uh, spoke against that, saying we should all do things that unite us. Noel sided with the woman. And eventually they won the day. They, They got all the demands included. The union had absolutely nothing to do with it. But then Noel remarks at the end of telling this story that if it, if it had been uh, a white woman um, and black workers, including women, were opposing her, he wouldn't have taken the same position. So uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting take on that. There is yeah. a story that he um, that uh, Jared uh, recounts in his piece in Commune, which I think is one of the uh, best pieces about Nolan kind of his legacy, uh, political and revolutionary legacy, where I think um, Noel like, likes to 
like likes to mess with the union guy and just like not pay <laughs> his dues just to make the union man come down and like really like you know uh double check you know checking on Noel about his dues and um throughout the book I I just like uh finished reading it really recently I think that kind of critique of the unionism comes through so much so that in that same story when um the black workers decide that you know um they are going to fight within the union to kind of create some sort of, I don't know if you would call it like an autonomous caucus or a caucus that would hold the union responsible. Noel kind of understands the limits of that, right? Um, and, you know, he's very well, well aware that that will end up in reformism, but he kind of doesn't say anything and he like lets it play out. And, um, you know, folks should like really, you know, read the book for that case. And, you know, it does play out in that way, right? Um, so I think kind of that critique of, um, you know, um, yeah, of changing the union from within, um, you know, he kind of sees the limits, but he doesn't berate the workers. I thought that that was a, a knowing no <laughs> and how argumentative he was. It was so nice to read the book and to see no from uh, this kind of like humbling experience of like learning from people and talking with them um, as opposed to just, uh, you know, like kind of like this intense uh, political engagement. I thought that was, it was one of my favorite things about the book. Yeah, so I found the Noel that wrote this book to be a much more kind and thoughtful person in the mill than we often found him to be in political debate outside the mill. And it showed a sensitive side of Noel that having known him for 50 years, I, very much appreciated. That's a bit of an aside echoing what Jana said. In that, however, in real life, <laughs> he did go to a large meeting of black steel workers in the Gary Public Library, led by old Communist Party types who wanted to form the caucus that Jana referred to. And Noel stood up in that meeting and raised hell about the absurdity of it and what had happened to the uh, similar historical efforts. And in that moment, he persuaded most of the black workers that it was a dead end effort. So he could be very uh, vociferous, even in the context of a worker meeting. Yeah, it's interesting. The impression I got from reading the book is, is not of one of uh, of like him, him witnessing or or um, initiating a lot of victory for the workers. Although one of their initiatives, uh, well, I think uh, one of the people he he's uh, organizing with gets elected to a, a union position. Um, some reforms are pushed through, but even that he's not very satisfied with. Um, he also talks about uh, championing the cause of of black women who were being discriminated against in the factory. Um, and that just went absolutely nowhere. Nobody was interested in that. Uh, he talks about a meeting that um, Sojourner Truth organization had between uh, an independent union from Mississippi and steel workers in which a uh, black steel worker responded that, uh, I'll quote from this section, um, black people in Mississippi have been betrayed so many times by whites that they are not going to rush into organize organization that was started by whites, even if it looks like it is to their advantage. 
Um, but through all this kind of defeat and uh, dead ends and cul-de-sacs, the moments of the book that come off the most inspiring are when he has like a fish fry or when workers are able to win some kind of ability to just slack off for an entire day. It seems like he's a lot more enthusiastic about this general disinterest in work than taking over the factory or something like that. I think Dave wants to talk about the outboard motor and the fish fry. And I just want to insert, that's the discussion I'll probably have tomorrow morning. Uh, and your response was the same as the Amazon people. Um, we did have meetings with black and white workers in support of the affirmative action. I mean, we worked like hell. We had a, a float in the July 4th 1976 parade in Gary. So it, it, it didn't come to much, but I don't want the picture to be that we weren't working hard in our attempt to organize in support of affirmative action throughout the Calumet region. Go ahead, Dave. Well, yeah, I, I just a couple of specific things from within the mill. I mean, part of what we're trying to do as revolutionaries is do away with wage labor altogether. And I think a lot of leftists overlook that. And that when you're on a job like Noel is, particularly in the steel mill, where the company is controlling the pace of work through what, what they call swing shifts, that is you work a different shift every couple of weeks, um, it, it can really completely take over your life. So there was a lot of instances of resistance to having their time uh, controlled completely by the company that some people would consider perhaps slacking, but Noel and I think all of us here consider to be a very radical thing to do. And so there, there's some very delightful things like they, the maintenance workers used to play cards and foreman comes in and says, I want you guys to go and fix something on this blast furnace. And one of the workers looks up from his hand and says, can't you see we're busy? Um, you know, it, it, it was a sort of pushback and it, it was done in a very funny way. But the fish fry thing was a kind of long involved discussion, but I think it illustrates a lot of things. Uh, one is that one of the workers who was friends with Noel said, he wanted to go fishing and uh, he had a boat, but he didn't have a motor. And Noel said, well, I have a motor, but it doesn't work. And so they go through this elaborate scheme of smuggling a motor by getting a friendly foreman to bring it in through in his pickup truck and taking it into the maintenance shop. And a whole group of workers really got into working together to fix this motor. And, um, and then they, they did fix it. They smuggled it out. Uh, several of them went fishing after their shift. They didn't catch a thing. So they went to uh, a fish store and asked them to give them some perch uh, that hadn't yet been scaled and you know prepared totally. And they bring the fish to the mill the next shift and they all work together cleaning the fish, frying them, and have themselves a big fish fry when they're supposed to be working. But uh, it, it is an example of 
two things. One one thing is the cooperative nature of of labor that when workers are working together on something that they think is important, the fish fry being it and the motor and so forth, they'll work very hard together and, and very diligently. Uh, the other thing is just simply resisting uh, being told when to work and when not to work. I, ju I just want to chime in um, uh, kind of like to add to what uh, Kingsley and Dave said. I, I actually, those were the parts of the book I really, really enjoyed. You know, I mean, I'm in my 30s. I uh, Kingsley, when I visited Chicago one of the first times, took me to Gary and I saw, you know, the stretch of just the steel mills, right? And how far into the distance they went. Um, and I think my generation has a very different relationship to what that kind of work would entail. And I think reading the book, there was so much about like the, the technical aspects of how it happens and how dangerous that job was and how... Um, you know, how little the the company and the union did to alleviate that, right? The danger and uh, the conditions. And so I thought the, resist, the resistance was even more important because of that. And um, there's one of my favorite parts is when you, um, I think Noel, when he first gets to, um, to the job, asks one of like kind of the left uh, groups, right? Like every left group and their mama is like in these factories. And he asks one of them, he's like, Oh, so, you know, what's up? Like, where's the workers movement? You know, and the guy's like, there's no movement at all. And then Noel kind of reflects on how he saw some he saw movement, right? He saw movement uh, when, you know, when, when guys were going to the shanty and, you know, drinking coffee, nodding on the job. Um, I thought his relationship with his coworker Jackson was really uh, interesting, right? Uh, a black worker who recounts this story of falling asleep next to his foreman, <laughs> right? And, and I'm like, wow, these guys just slept so much, right? It was like this joke that people went to work to sleep. Um, so I thought that those kind of parts of resistance was really important. Um, very different from, I think, you know, as uh, David Kingsley were saying, kind of what the left groups would have seen, right? It was, it was kind of like really a challenge to that kind of just terrible, terrible wage work there's a really interesting part of this book where uh that everyone has a, a sort of captive seminar the workers are called in for this captive seminar when uh they, they have a somebody a kind of a motivational speaker come in and say you know we're at this uh in this economic war with japan and if we let japan win then there's not going to be any more steel industry in the united states and you're all going to lose your jobs and, uh, you know, some workers didn't care. Some workers bought into it. But I got the sense that uh, writing in the, the early 70s or, or taking place, this book takes place in the early 70s, as, uh, you know, the deindustrialization really begins to come into full effect in the United States, um, that these kinds of workplace struggles or this kind of apathy for work might have been something of its era. Do you, do you think that's true or do you think that, that this kind of um, disinterest and and uh, resistance of of work and like uh, the ideology of of the workplace has just always been true in the history of uh, industrial capitalism. I think it's inherent in capitalism. It's certainly taking a different form today. But uh, yeah, I mean, we should ask our friend at at Amazon. I mean, I think there's a lot of things like that that go on. I hope you bring this up tomorrow at five a.m. Kingsley with uh, the Amazon worker, but. Uh, you know, it, it really was a, a struggle about wage labor, uh, period. And wage labor is wage labor. And I think 
the union organizing uh, doesn't recognize this at all. But when you work on those jobs day after day after day, whether you're working at an Amazon uh, quote-unquote fulfillment center or whether you're working at U.S. Steel Gary Works, it it is it hits you right in the face. And I know from you know my workplace experience, it was the same thing. So I don't think that's just a, a thing of its era. I think that is a um, very real part of the struggle against capitalism on the part of the working class. I would have answered that and do answer it the same as, as Dave. However, as he was speaking, I was trying to get my mind <laughs> It's not in around the mind of the workers I saw as a lawyer in the 70s. <clears throat> and I think they would say correctly that they were walking. Uh, I don't want to be in any way overly dramatic, but dead men walking in the sense that everyone assumed that they could just get another job. And when I talk to steel workers now who are my age, former steel workers, they say, you know, we get fired one day, uh, go across the street and get hired by Inland down the street. And they thought that that would continue on. I don't think people were uh, facing the reconstruction of capitalism that took place around 1973. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Yeah. Could I could I just say something about the safety issue because that that came up? Uh, uh, the the safety issue is certainly a live issue today. And uh, talking to a number of people who work in the uh, logistics industry, uh, they they face some very serious safety issues. Uh, the steel mills it was absolutely deadly, and that that the almost universal thing is companies make all these safety rules and the the safety rules are not really for the safety of the worker. It's to have a continuity of production. And that in fact, uh, uh, at, at a place like U.S. Steel Gary, they have this huge book, uh, I forget what they called it, that has all these rules and safety rules. And but that the safety rules aren't enforced when it comes time to wanting the workers to work fast or to do something. And I, I just want to read a little passage, which I, I really liked, uh, uh, and it shows kind of Noel's style in talking to, to some of the workers about safety. They're having a discussion of this, and Noel says, what would happen if you followed all the safety rules exactly as they're written? One of the workers says, you couldn't get any work done. You'd have to hold up the job waiting for them to get equipment in shape before you touch it. You just watch sometime when you're in the skip house and the furnace is down. There can be a dozen blue hats in there, and if you're working on getting the furnace going, they don't care if you're hopping on one leg. They can be without your glasses or without your hard hat. Hell, you could be barefoot, but if they're in a hurry to get it running, they wouldn't notice. But you just try to walk out of the shanty to take a piss without your hard hat on, and some blue hat will come along and write you up for that. Uh, Noel, Noel replies, what if you get hurt rushing to get the job done? 
It's your fault for failing to follow the ESJP. So who does the ESJP protect? Well, when you look at it that way, it does seem that the rules are there to protect the company and not the men. Knowles thinks to himself, I sit back thinking I have accomplished enough for one night. <laughs> so, yeah, he's so, got you know, a lot of these little uh, uh, memories of discussions like this, and, and some of them he he uh, he, he uh, puts it as if that he, he won the discussion or he, he furthered his point, and sometimes it, it seems like it's fallen on deaf ears. Yes, that's that's right. Uh, uh, but but he he did a lot of that kind of thing of, of engaging workers to talk and uh, often did bring out of them their their own feelings about it. He didn't tell them this is bullshit. This is uh, for the for the company and not the workers. He just asked a bunch of questions and got a bunch of answers and. This was what was inside of them to begin with. They all knew it was bullshit. So, so Dave, I'm sure this could be an episode in itself. Um, but would you? Are there any stories, uh, similar stories of, of your time uh, in in Southeast Chicago factories that uh, that might be interesting to share? Uh, well, well, yeah. Um, one of one of the things about uh, uh, cooperative labor, I'll, I'll compare two stories. One of Knowles that really connected with me and, and one of mine. And that was that uh, at the mill, when Noel was there, there was a huge accident that completely disabled a part of the production process, so much so that the management called in all the maintenance workers from all three shifts to come in, and it took them 16 hours to repair this thing. And uh, in, in that moment, the workers really worked hard. They didn't uh, slack off at all, unlike uh, almost all the rest of the time. And they organized the work themselves. They didn't really need management to tell them how to do it. And, and it was just this beautiful example of self-organization to fix this thing. And Noel says at the end of that to his friend Jackson, doesn't it really feel good when you can accomplish something like this? He, he wasn't saying it was for the company, it was for them, and it was a cooperative endeavor. Now, similarly, I worked in a chemical plant uh, where uh, part of the process was that a conveyor hooked up to a computer pulled a railroad car into an oven, and when the oven was done, the doors would automatically open and the conveyor would pull them out. Um, what happened was that the computer screwed up, a switch went out, and the, the uh, conveyor pulled the car out with the door closed and it knocked the door off the oven. This was a huge thing. So uh, this was another case where they brought all of us in to work on it. And, uh, but it was very, very hot work. And we organized and figured out ourselves how to fix it. Nobody else in the management had a clue. And we decided we needed to take breaks every so often. And uh, so we, we would take breaks because it was really hot working inside the oven. It hadn't completely cooled and everything was hot to the touch. So the management came down and yelled at us to get back to work. And uh, everybody just walked off the job, and went in the lunchroom and sat down. And our foreman came in and screamed at us and 
uh, we just said, you want this thing fixed or not? If you don't like our pace of work, then you do it. So, you know, it was a very similar uh, kind of attitude, only in the mill, they left them alone. They just did it. And it was it was very beautiful. But I I thought it was very beautiful to see the way people, uh, th- there is a collectivity about labor when you're doing it for yourself. And this is something we knew how to do and something the management didn't know how to do. And, you know, we did it. I've got a million stories about factories. I hope people look at my book too, but because, you know, I, I think one nice thing about Noel was he uh, read my book uh, before he had finished his and gave a lot of useful comments. And the last time I saw him was uh, on my own book tour. And uh, he, he uh, was very supportive. And, you know, Noel and I live next door to each other for part of the time when Noel was in the steel mill. And uh, when he was on first shift, I, I always worked for first shift, but when he was on first shift, uh, uh, we'd get together in Noel's basement and we'd share stories about what was going on in the workplace. And uh, uh, a lot of Noel's stories showed up in his book. So it was very nice for me to edit the book and see uh, those same stories there. How about you, Jana? Do you have any stories of your life in the, the factories of Chicago <laughs> in the seventies? Well, I was, I always had food service jobs, which were terrible. And I was always trying to slack. So I kind of, uh, I, I appreciated uh, a lot of that, um, slack culture showing up in the book. <laughs> um, but uh, in all seriousness, uh, Hardcrackers, I think, carries on some of this methodology of, uh, of simply sharing stories of people's daily lives, people's working lives. Um, so uh, yeah, why, why, don't we, why don't you talk a little bit about, um, of course, I, I should have mentioned earlier that the Long Natai have passed away in, in 2019, and Hardcrackers put out a really beautiful retrospective issue about uh, you know some of his writing and, and memories of his. So um, would you like to talk about Hardcrackers for a second and its connection to the the acceptable men method or project. For sure, for sure. So um, I think one, so. One of uh, I, I was looking at this interview that Noel did with. Um, it was one of the last interviews he did before he passed away uh, with Vincent Kelly for Orchestrated Pulse, and he was really excited about it. Um, and the interview was about Hardcrackers, but it was also about Noel uh, and his political work and situating him, I think, within this larger context of political organizing, right, that Kingsley and Dave were part of. And I think in that interview, um, Noel is like, you know, really good at being succinct and says, you know, um, I I would like to summarize my uh, 60 plus years of political activism, you know, in three main things. He says the first is labor in the white skin cannot be free, wherein the black it is branded, right, which is Marx's um, uh, the second is for revolutionaries, dual power is the key strategy. And then he says the emancipation of the workers is the task of the workers themselves. So I think, you know, kind of that informed a lot of the work that he did. But I think when we think about dual power, when we think of especially in like moments of uh, of how would dual, po- dual power come about, I think it kind of delves into it will come from kind of the contradictions of society being pressed on and kind of work, uh, working class people 
really kind of living in uh, in this duality of, on the one hand, um, you know, going to work, participating, sometimes even often in like, you know, messed up things, right? Um, having messed up ideas or, but then at the same time, wanting something different, right? So that kind of that contradiction is what would get pressed on it where um, any potential would kind of emerge from. Um, and I think that really speaks to some of the work that uh, we were we were trying to do at Heartcrackers. It was not so much only about documenting everyday life, but documenting these contradictions that people experience every day that live in their hearts and minds. Um, and I think something that I took from Noel a lot was uh, to really look at the uh, the distinction between what people say and what people do, right? Um, that you know. There's a lot of stupid ideas <laughs> that people have about how the I mean, stupid is probably not the best word to use, but right. Like they have maybe the quote unquote wrong ideas about how stuff works, but then they do stuff that shocks you. Right. Um, and I think that kind of contradiction is really important to record and kind of what we've been doing. And something else I thought about in in um, with Heartcrackers is that um, I think I was talking with John Garvey about this um, you know, I think Knowles, we, we don't really know the, the legacy that like the political legacy that Noel kind of left. Right. Um, I mean, I think first we have to really situate him in this context of STO, of race trader, now heartcrackers. Um, but we don't really know, as John reminded me, the full measure of kind of a lot of these uh, ideas. Right. We have the memoir now. Uh, heartcrackers put out this special issue where uh, former uh, revolutionaries and close friends reflecting on his life and legacy. Um, we continue with the project, but, you know, we really don't know <laughs> kind of like how, how we will measure that in the future, right? Hopefully uh, more, more, more folks and a generation of young people engage with that, those ideas. And I think that's kind of the hope that um, we, yeah, we kind of go back to really looking at like the seeds of a new society in this messed up world that we live in. Yeah, I, I want to just add that one of the things you said, Jana, uh, uh, made me think about something that was in the book. Um, and that is that uh, workers on the one hand, uh, both in my experience and what I read in Noel's book, uh, do some of these incredible things like you know, fixing that this uh, thing that took him 16 hours to fix on an emergency basis and have very detailed knowledge of a lot of things. But on the other hand, a lot of people have a tendency to want to explain the total irrationality of capitalism by um, coming up with all these kind of goofy uh, theories about how things work. And uh, and when we think about the uh, so-called QAnon conspiracy theories, uh, they're really kind of fantasies. And people have been writing on that recently. But there's a section in here where people are giving their views about how things work. And he says, one guy thinks the Earth is shaped like an apple with a bite out of it. One believes that a super species inhabits the earth and is raising us all for food. Another thinks that weather forecasters exaggerate snowstorm possibilities to sell snowblowers. And, you know, and it kind of goes on and on like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, yeah. 
No, I agree. I, I mean, I think uh, the last thing I'll say about that, um, you know, I think there is a lot of tendency now, for instance, we're living through a pandemic, right? I mean, uh, I don't know, I'm, mass I'm matching my mask to my outfit. Like, <laughs> never would I imagine in a million years I would be doing that, right? Um, and I think there's a lot of tendency among uh, leftists. I see this with my generation, right? Like the wokeness of being, you know, saying, well, the people that don't believe in the vaccine are stupid or the QAnon people are stupid or, uh, you know, when Trump's rise, the Trump supporters are stupid. And I think at least with the Heartcrackers Project, something we try to do is to not necessarily label people that, right? But kind of give some voice to those contradictions and why people believe the things they do, right? Like, where does that come from? Um, you know, how can you know, uh, how can we understand that, right? Um, and understand that it's a lot more complicated than just saying stupid, right? And, and it's something that's like, I really appreciated about about um, Noel's book. And I think that shines through, right? This kind of almost like um, very much influenced by like CRL James, right? And this idea that there is, and just, just um, Noel's interest in civil war and uh, what revolution could potentially look like in the United States if we look at what happened historically is that there's always these contradictions and this civil war within the hearts and minds of people. And, you know, that's what we should be kind of attentive, attentive to as opposed to just, you know, these blanket statements that don't really help us get anywhere. Well, that and also it doesn't in a way, it doesn't matter that this person believes that the world's shaped like an apple or that uh, another person mm -hmm. believes that the lizards run the world or uh, that somebody is, you know, philosophically anti-racist and will, you know, they'll go to a, a protest against racism. What kind of matters is what you actually do, in this case, at work. Um, and uh, I, I, that that's something that really resonates with me because I, you know, working in Brooklyn, uh, mostly in food service, I would often work alongside self-professed radical people, people in the IWW or other organizations who were just completely disinterested in what was going on at the place we worked because they were working on some campaign at some other factory or, or you know, they were an activist on some other issue. And as a result, the the day-to-day -day struggles uh, at the places that we worked um, were, were just totally uninteresting to them. Um, so that's, that's part of what the methodology of this his activity is, is not to come in and, and give the the correct ideology to the workers or to tell them, hey, uh, you know, you're being a racist, cut it out, um, but to actually, you know, day by day, meet the class, struggle with the class and uh, observe and understand uh, what their activity is and what the contradictions are. Yeah. And just something I wanted to add to that is but to also be unyielding in political principles, right? I think something that I, for me personally, um, that really resonated with me in reading about STO and kind of meeting Kingsley Dave and just like badass revolutionaries, really, <laughs> you know, um, is I think to to not compromise with there's so many instances, like whether in the book, uh, in speaking to Kingsley and Dave and Noel um, and not giving into to, you know, white workers ridiculousness <laughs> as well. Right. Like not kind of giving into. Um, you know, when organizing, really taking the demands of black workers seriously, even even if it would piss a bunch of white workers off. Right. I think that's a very different kind of organizing um, and kind of being unyielding in your political principles. And for, you know, for the kind of like world you want to build in that I think was very important um, for me to learn about STO. And I think that's a really important legacy 
um, for young people today. And, I, you know, I, I hope that when people read the book, I think for me, it something that's really important is for um, like our generations to kind of talk with each other, you know, uh, even though there is no left for good or bad, <laughs> I think that those kinds of historical memories, historical lessons are really, really important. So I felt, I, I felt really happy that there was so much written about Noel when he, uh, when he passed away, I think it spoke a lot to not only his, uh, you know, the things he participated in politically, but I think there is a resurgent interest in these, in these issues today, right? Uh, I mean, since, you know, we've seen Occupy, Black Lives Matter, like we have like these waves of struggles. And um, I just think it's really important to kind of, I don't know, to connect us more, right? To, to have these conversations and to kind of learn uh, what, the, what the struggles were, what were the limits, what were the possibilities, um, and how can that help our generation? And I think the political principles are, you know, have have lived on, even though many of the factories have left. The, the political principles that were behind uh, Noel's practice as a revolutionary and behind ours, uh, thing that both John and I mentioned that the notion that the emancipation of the working class is the task of the working class themselves. That uh, that particular political idea uh, dominates your practice, and a lot of left groups don't really seem to believe in that. Uh, they think the party or the union or this and that are the pathway out. But to see it with all the contradictions is something. Um, that is a task for the workers themselves, and that our job is to bring that out. And and uh, and another thing that I noticed in my factory work was that when there was a real struggle going on, uh, it really brought out the best in the, the workers. Um, not all the workers; they didn't take part in the struggle. The ones that it didn't bring that out in, but like we had a wildcat strike at one place I worked. And uh, I was amazed to see there had been a lot of antagonism like between Latinos and uh, blacks and whites. Uh, there weren't very many whites there, but the, the uh, thing with the blacks and Latinos it really went away for the duration of the struggle because the class dimension uh, emerged. And um, I, I think that kind of thing does continue to this day. So to look look at Noel's book and look at the, the the politics that were expressed in the course of working at U.S. Steel Gary Works is really important for people to take away and think about that in terms of what they're doing today. Well, this is just my last word. It's going to be very brief. Don't worry. <laughs> it, it relates to lizards and bites out of apples. Um, I'm going to quote from page 99 of Noel's book, where he quotes his girlfriend, Dorothy. I've been in prison, I've been in a mental hospital, and I've worked in the mill. And as far as I'm concerned, this place is the weirdest of all. <laughs> At least in those other places, they knew something was wrong. Around here, people think what they do is normal. Well, I wanted to invite a little bit of closing discussion with another quote towards the end of the book. Um, and this is where Noel is describing leaving the factory, or um, he gets a, a scholarship to go to Harvard. Um, and he says, In Russia, unsuccessful revolutionaries of an earlier generation were sent to Siberia. 
in Germany, they were battered to death in the back of automobiles and their lifeless bodies thrown into the Landswehr Canal. In the U.S., black revolutionaries I knew personally went to prison for decades or were murdered in their beds, while so-called whites went to graduate school. So obviously he's talking about himself and um, some other uh, revolutionaries he knew. Uh, What happened with STO uh, as the 70s went on and, uh, you know, about this general mood of of revolution that carried uh, from the end of the 60s into the 70s? This uh, book of Knowles and and my own, they all occurred in the 1970s. Uh, STO did undergo a a shift. Um, That's a a very long, complicated discussion. But various ones of us uh, carried on or didn't carry on in different ways. You know, I went back to the university and one of the things I was always very conscious of, and I think Noel uh, a little less so because uh, I came out of academia, went into the factories and went back to academia, was that uh, we, uh, being educated and, and white, uh, were much more likely to land on our feet as a result of any catastrophe that happened at the workplace. And it was always something to be mindful of of in terms of the kind of work we were doing and uh uh and it created a kind of i called it inside out and outside in that in one sense we were outsiders looking in we were revolutionaries uh we were looking for the seeds of a socialist society uh from the outside but we were also inside uh doing the work and it was a very uh, unique uh, time in Noel's life and in our life. STO continued for 10 years after Noel left the mill. And I think it, as Dave said, is just too complicated for this podcast, but continued revolutionary activity. Um, worked a lot with the MLN, the Puerto Rican Liberation Group. And um, Ultimately, in about 1955, dwindled down to its extinction. Mike Stoudemire's book, Truth and Revolution, is the history of STO that I think does a very good job of uh, dealing with that. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say one thing before we close up, and that is that the, the book, Noel's book, Acceptable Men, is the uh, book that's been being published by the Charles H. Kerr Publishing Company. Uh, some of us, Kingsley and I partic- here, are both working on a project. Uh, Kerr has been around since 1886 and continuously operating, but it had been in a quite a slump for a number of years, and we're trying to restore it. And this book, Acceptable Men, is the first of a whole series of titles uh, that uh, where we hope to restore another uh, rather unique publishing company. Uh, hey, any uh, last thoughts from you, Jana? Yeah, I was going to say, um, I, I was I was reflecting a lot on um, just, again, kind of going back to like Noel, the legacy, what this book will mean for, um, for also a new generation of young people today. Um, and I was thinking a lot about how, you know, there's so much renewed interest in socialism and communism. I love all the memes. 
first all I do all day is take screenshot of memes. And um, I think there is there is a lot of youth culture today that is defying work, uh, that is resisting work, that is, uh, you know, trying to think of, you know, new ways of living, right? Um, uh, participating, whether it's in DSA or in protests and riots, rebellion, right? So I think it's a really important and interesting moment. I think I'm really excited to live through it because man, there was there was nothing fucking happening in the 90s, you know? So it's, it's really amazing. But I think in that for me, Noel, um, and the context, right? So Noel for sure, but the political context he was in, right? So the context that Dave and Kingsley also belong to, um, that generation, y'all's generation revolutionaries, really taking up, um, I think, the question of race as well, um, because I think it's very common for a lot of communists and leftists today to, you know, to to really be enamored by the Paris Commune and I don't know, Bolshevism and the Russian Revolution, which were great. Right. I mean, like props, of course, you know, but I think we often forget the particularities of the America of the U.S. context. And I think for me, um, what I appreciate a lot about Noel specifically was um the lessons that he drew from the abolitionist movement, the lessons that he drew from a small dedicated group of radicals to actually push contradictions and make change possible and make revolution, right, in some way and um, and participate in, uh, in, you know, in changing society. So I think I think that is really important because I think these issues are coming up again. There's a lot of interest in abolition, in whiteness, um, you know, and going beyond like the, the, the guiltiness of whiteness. Um, so I think for me, really looking at uh, the history of the United States and the contradictions of American society and how um, that is going to be where we begin. Right. I mean, I love the commune and the Russian Revolution. But we ain't that, right? Like in many ways, no, I think I that's, I don't know, I, I really appreciate like the, the specificity be. to the world that we live it's in and, and participate in every day. The guy's me. I wake up in the morning, it's always a must. I gotta catch the six o'clock bus. I'll grab my hat and my steel toe shoes. I'm a hard-working guy with a steel worker's blues. I go to work, come rain or come shine, eight long hours till the end of that grind. Yet I know my money is going to find its way right back to that mill I left today. I grab my hat. My steel toe shoes. I'm a hard working guy with a steel worker's blues. Now you might think what well, I say ain't true. Well, let me tell you, brother, I wouldn't lie to you. If you look around, I'm sure you're going to see a lot of hard working guys. Just like me, I grab my hat and my steel toe shoes.